a couple weeks ago we talked about when it comes to husbands about the tendency that probably many of us have to be tyrannical in our marriages we talked about the inner tyrant that's waiting to kind of come out and the problems with that today I want to talk about something that's kind of on the other end of the spectrum and that's what I call the inner schoolboy the inner schoolboy and again this is primarily for husbands wives uh, please don't elbow your husbands at appropriate times let the Holy Spirit do that uh, if he does it it'll be more effective back when I was uh, a boy I was a huge fan of Bill Cosby's uh, comedy in fact I had all the I, I think all the albums that he had ever made and if you don't know what an album is uh, it's a, a black vinyl version of Spotify and I had some of his routines memorized and um, one I remembered after I was married maybe 10 15 years and I thought to myself hmm that was me he said when you get married he said there are things that um, you need to do that you didn't realize before you got married you thought that you were just supposed to get a job uh, bring a paycheck home give it to your wife she gives you the money and you go, you go out and play now, I was 19 years old when I got married. Shh. Uh, don't advise that. And so I was very young. I had gone right from my parents' home to uh, living with this woman. And, and I realized that I thought in my mind that that's the way it was. I, I was now free to do whatever I wanted to. I could go out and play. And it, it, the idea, you know, Betty and I had one premarital counseling session with a guy with a guy who wasn't married. So uh, I didn't have a very good start. Betty worked for a Christian bookstore and had read literally every book on marriage that they had. So she was, she was way ahead of me. And, but all I was thinking about, now I can do what I want. And the, the, the idea of what my responsibilities were, I was absolutely clueless, ob oblivious. Uh, when we talked about the inner tyrant the other week, we were talking about someone who wants to have his own way. What I mean by that, he wants to, this is a guy who, who wants to rule over his wife. <clears throat> he wants to uh, have her admire him. He wants to have her obey him. Uh, he wants to have her react, respond to him the way he wants to her to respond to. He wants to have his own way. The inner schoolboy is just like him. In that, he wants to have his own way. But he wants to have his own way differently. He wants to be left alone to play, and that might mean hobbies, right? Some of you work on cars in your garages. Some of us work on wood projects in our garage. Some of us have hobbies. Uh, hunting might be... Um, Video games, when I was at, we were in Yosemite National Park in July, there was a, a, a family walking up this long hill. Betty and I, I were resting, uh, we were on a bike ride. We were under a tree, and I saw this, this family, maybe early 30s, maybe, two boys lagging behind, seven and nine, maybe, 
And the dad's, he's, he's oblivious to what's going on behind him. He's walking up this hill. Back here's his wife, about 10 feet behind him, trying to manhandle these kids who wanted to do anything except walk up a hill. And I, I notice he's something on the front of his shirt. And I am just obsessed with reading anything that you have on your shirt. I, I have to do it. And so I saw when he turned toward me one time, it said Fortnite, and I couldn't get the rest. Later he turned around, and it, this is what it said. I stopped playing Fortnite to be here. He's maybe 32. And I'm sure it was his slacker brother-in-law's hand-me-down shirt. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But, but I thought how indicative that can be for uh, a representative of us who want to go out and play. We, we, we're going to bring home the money, sweetheart, but then I want to be able to do just what I want. And by God's grace, these weeks and in several weeks from now, we're going to be talking to the wives. We're trying to promote a vision of a Christian marriage with Christ at the center where what he wants us to do trumps what we want to do. Where his dreams for our marriage trump our dreams of what marriage can be. So we're going to look at a number of scriptures this morning. And, and husbands, if uh, I have been praying for you this week, and I've been praying for you the kinds of things that I prayed before we started the message, and that is that you would have an open heart, because I get it. It's easy to sit and hear these kinds of things and say, oh, that's, I hope Joe is listening, or I hope Fred is listening, I hope Steve is listening. No, God wants to speak to you this morning. He wants you to listen. And I've been praying that God would dismantle obstacles that you put up for the Spirit to speak to you, and uh, I'm continue to pray that that will be the case. So I have two points, starting with this one. Husband, take responsibility. Take responsibility. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> verse 3. Paul says, but there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Read that again. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now we can tell pretty quickly if you read down through the context that he's not talking, Paul's not talking about, okay, we have a half a dozen women in a room and half a dozen men in the room and the men are in charge. He's talking about a husband-wife relationship. <clears throat> and we, as we read this, the key question to ask is, what does that mean, head? Now you, it's unavoidable. You, you do the word studies and the Greek word that's used there. It's unavoidable to, uh, not to conclude that this means authority. But that's not all it means. And to repeat the line from our secondary position statement on men and women, uh, to just take one sentence out of that that we looked at two weeks ago, we teach that males are to lovingly lead slash shepherd both their homes 
and that we reference 1 Corinthians 11.3, and their churches. We teach that males are to lovingly lead slash shepherd both their homes and their churches. Now, the last 15, 20 years, I have uh, taken to talking about marriage and using shepherd a lot more because I think it's far more um, descriptive of what God is looking for. By the way, ladies, did you take note in that text that it says that uh, even though it says man is head of the woman, it also in the same context describes a similar relationship and that is God the Father and God the Son. God the Father is head of Christ. And, and we know that Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So there's no, uh, there's no like I'm inferior in any way. I and the Father are one. And yet, Jesus said while he was here on earth, I only say what the Father tells me to say and I only do what the Father tells me to do. There was this, there was this voluntary, this, I'm here to point back to him. And I think it's interesting, compare that John 10, 20 verse where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, back to Genesis 2, 28, where it says, man shall leave his father and mother and, and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. God the Father, head of Christ, Christ the head of the man, man the head of the woman. But again, Guys, don't get the idea that that somehow gives you the right to throw your weight around in your home. Rather, you are a shepherd, and a shepherd takes care of his sheep because the shepherd is responsible for his sheep. In fact, the New Testament word for shepherd really is pastor. Ephesians 4.11 talks about the gifts that God has given to the local church, uh, apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers that's the word shepherd there and your family is your flock your wife your children is your flock and God has called you to pastor your flock now we who serve as elders in the local church have a heavy burden upon us not just because it's a lot of work sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but because it's a sobering responsibility. And let me have you look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, this is a passage that as elders we look at again and again and again and again and again. Ephesians, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in the glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. And the word that's used in the Greek text is shepherd. Shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to you. So this is the flock that God has entrusted to us 10 elders here at Keystone. And he goes on to say, uh, don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the good shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. In other words, there's a reminder there that elders are going to be accountable to the flock, for the flocks that they were entrusted with. There's going to be some scrutiny done to them. And the writer of the Hebrews makes this real explicit. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it admonishes the people in the church 
to make the job of the elders easy, easier because they must give an account for their shepherding. And in the same way, husbands, you and I must give an account for the families that you and I have been trusted with. Who do we give an account to? God. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, says this. And this is one of a couple of places. It says this in the New Testament. Each of us will give a personal account to God. Each of us will give a personal account to God. 2 Corinthians 5, I think it's verse 10, says much the same thing. It says we will all stand before God one day and give an account of ourselves, of our deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, don't misunderstand that to say that replaces the gospel and somehow our deeds are now determinant whether or not we go to heaven or hell. It's not the case. Jesus, our faith in Jesus Christ alone determines that. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that we will all have our works examined and some of those works will produce rewards for us and other of those works will be burned up because they're not worth anything. And so what he's talking about, giving account to God, has to do with our works. And husbands, for us, part of that is, if we are the head of our wives, we will, be giving, we will have to give an account of our stewardship of that marriage and of that family. And this is what I tell husbands-to-be when we do premarital counseling. Guys, you have to understand that when, you, when the Bible says you're the head of of this marriage union that doesn't mean don't think privilege think responsibility and so husbands take responsibility now you might say well I don't know what that means what does it mean to take responsibility how does it look different than the guy who doesn't take responsibility and so my second point is husband take initiative to me the key word for egg uh, for Fleshing out responsibility as a, as a shepherd, as a pastor in my home has to do with taking initiative. In other words, I'm the one who feels the weight of things that need to be done or things that need to be corrected in the home. Now, my wife is going to help me correct them, but I'm the one who takes the responsibility for them. And now I flesh them out in initiative. And I have three points to make under this. Husband, take initiative. One, in the area of spiritual health in your home. In the area of spiritual health in your home. Look with me at Genesis chapter uh, 2. Very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 2. God has just made Adam. Eve's not on the scene yet. <clears throat> the Lord God, uh, verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it to tend and watch over it say that with me men to tend and watch over it in other words God says this is your realm you are responsible for what takes place in the garden you are to tend it and watch over it but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So God knew what men would be like. He knew he had to make things short and sweet and simple. You just got one rule, buddy. 
one. One tree to avoid. The rest have at it. One tree you can't eat from. And we know that, God, uh, that Adam, uh, Eve is created right after this, and we know that Adam told her what God had said. She wasn't in the dark. So now we get to chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest, <clears throat> excuse me, of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now we know from further scripture in both the Old Testament and New Testament that this was not simply a, a, a bad directed animal, but this was Satan himself inhabiting the uh, form of a, of a serpent. Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, which he didn't. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the next line says, the woman was convinced. I mean, think of that. A couple of sentences, and she was convinced to go against God. She saw that the tree was beautiful, peeled to the eyes. Fruit looked delicious, peeled to the taste. And she wanted the wisdom it would give to her. It appealed to her ego. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And if the account would stop there, we should automatically think, where was Adam? And it goes on to say, <clears throat> I lost my place. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. We're like, dude, what are you thinking? God's giving you this instruction. You're standing next to her. She's looking at this. She's uh, desiring it. And you don't pipe up at all and say, no, 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 honey. Don't you remember what God told us? All the fruit's ours except this one. And if that wasn't bad enough that he didn't speak up, now she gives him fruit. And instead of saying no, <clears throat> at that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. They had been naked all along, but now they felt shame at it and so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And then what happened? Now, we know that God knows everything. God sees everything. And so he watched what took place. He watched the temptation. He watched Eve capitulate first. Watched Adam capitulate second. And he says, where are you, Adam? What the world? Eve started this whole mess. What's he doing looking for Adam? Because Adam was responsible to tend the garden and watch over it. Everything that took place in that sphere was his responsibility. And men, what takes place in our homes, 
is our responsibility. You remember what Adam did, right? When God found out, well, of course he knew, but when God confronted him with what he did, it was the woman's fault. See the inner school boy? I don't wash my hands of the responsibility. It was her fault. Yeah, I didn't give her the responsibility of the garden. I gave it to you. And brothers, God looks to us first when things aren't the way they should be in the home. There's a reason when we examine men for prospective eldership here at Keystone that we ask them about what their home is like. The scriptures say that if a man is not charge of his home, if he's not taking good care of his home, if he's not shepherding his home, then he's not yet prepared to step up to the next responsibility of shepherding a church. And not only do we ask the husband about that, but we have a separate interview with the wife and we ask her, is he, when you are in private, like we see him in public? Because if he's not, He's not ready to shepherd the flock. Is he perfect? No. All ten of us elders are imperfect, flawed. The question is, are we pursuing this responsibility? God held Adam responsible. So much so that if you get to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, sin entered the world, not through Eve, but through one man, Adam. Just a sin into the world through one man, and de- so sin- uh, death came to all because all sinned. Adam, husband, you and I, we're responsible. And so it's our responsibility, because it's our responsibility, we take initiative for the spiritual health of our homes. It's we, not our wives, that we bank on. It's we who teach and encourage in the home to honor and to obey God. It's we who take responsibility to, in every way we can find, to proclaim the gospel yet again, to remind our children that it is by faith, it's grace through faith that makes us right with God, that Jesus died to save sinners like daddy and mommy and you. It's we who speak about the church and make sure that we plug into a good, healthy church. And if things are awry, it's we who speak up and say, what's going on in our church? It's we who make the decision to change the church if we need to because the word is no longer being preached. It's we who model and teach serving to our children and ministry. Spiritual health. We should feel the weight of that on our shoulders, husbands. Also, relational health. I can talk with your wife and probably find out how healthy your marriage is. That's because she has a relational skill that you and I don't necessarily have. She's intuitive about both the strengths and the weaknesses in our marriage. It's one of the reasons that, guys, we have to get better and better at sitting down with our wives and asking her about our marriage because we don't really know. Let's be honest. We really don't know. And, and I don't know if you're like me. I really don't want to know sometimes. 
But it's always enlightening when I ask Betty, how do you you see these things? And then I find out, I'm like, wow, I didn't see things that way. And yet it's our responsibility. The relational health is our responsibility because we're the shepherds. And so we need her input. We need her insight. Genesis chapter 16, look at verse, uh, first six verses. This is several chapters after God has called Abram to leave his home country and has called him out of pagan peoples and say, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to build a nation through you. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. And so Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. And that's the, that's the appropriate time for Abram to go, no, that's a bad idea. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram, what? Uh, uh, agreed with Sarai's proposal. I mean, as, as a wife, I'm thinking, okay, I'm proposing this, but the right thing for him to say is, that's a bad idea. And instead he agreed with her. And things went south from there. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. And so Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. And then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. And I'm wanting to go, no, 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 it's not. (laughs) This is your idea in the first place. But if he's the one responsible, it is his fault. If he's responsible for this this little flock. She said, I put my servant into your arms, but now now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Again, not taking responsibility at all. And so Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. By the way, just for the record, people often ask, why do we see so much polygamy in the Old Testament? Why did God put up with it? Do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked about divorce? He said, God permitted divorce because, can anybody finish that? Your hearts were hard. God permits things because our hearts are hard. And God permitted polygamy because people's hearts were hard. And yet if you rummage through the scriptures in the Old Testament where, you know, by the New Testament, it seemed like that was done in Israel. You see nothing but disaster and chaos in those homes. Abraham, Sarah, um, Jacob, nothing but disaster. Hannah's home. Permits things because hearts are hard. And so here's this man taking another woman other than his wife. And that's, I I don't care who you are. I don't care if you live in a culture where polygamy is accepted or not. That's going to have repercussions in your relationship, in your marriage. And this this is the man who's responsible for, yes, the spiritual health in his home, but he's also responsible for the 
relational help, health in his home. I've shared before, one of the th- things that God uh, dealt with me 10, 12 years ago was Betty and I hated conflict. We both were really bad at doing conflict, so we both just avoided it. If things, we had friction, we just, we'd go on and forget it ever happened. But of course, you never really forget it ever ha- it happened. And the day came when God said, I know you're scared of the consequences, but for your marriage's sake, you need to man up and talk about conflict. And looking back, it was one of the best things that's ever happened in our marriage. It, it got stuff out in the open that was buried that needed to be gotten out in the open, and it's been a wonderful blessing to us. But God spoke to me about it because I'm the shepherd in the home. Uh, men, you should feel the responsibility to nourish your marriage relationship. To say, honey, you know, it would be nice for us to do something for our marriage. How about if we read a book, a good Christian book on marriage together and talk about it? Uh, how about if we go to a marriage conference? Uh, Betty and I went to a marriage conference, I don't know how many years ago, down at uh, King of Prussia, I think. And it was wonderful, family life uh, conference it did some wonderful things, getting some things out in the open again that were well hidden. That we do that rather than wait till our wives do that. Uh, if there's a sexual issue, I mean, a lot of guys are grumpy about their sex lives. I know this to be true. Don't wait for your wife to deal with it. You deal with it. Say, honey, let's, while we're, the fire's not hot, we're just going to sit at the table and we're going to talk about some of the things that we're frustrated about and see if, if with God's help we can't chart a course going forward that's going to bless our marriage. You should feel that responsibility, husband, not the wife. Same with issues with the children, that we should feel responsibility for the, how the teaching goes in our home. Again, you know, when our children were young, my wife's doing most of the teaching while she, She's at home and I'm at work. And she's doing most of the discipline. But our children knew that dad's force was behind mom's teaching and mom's discipline. That I took the responsibility. And I didn't do this well all the time by no stretch of the imagination. But there needs to be an understanding that dads, we're the ones that the children realize ultimately are behind all the teaching that takes place the spiritual teaching, the moral teaching, the life lessons teaching, the discipleship, in other words, that we're behind that as well as the discipline. Your children should have every conviction that what your wife says to them has the authority of husband and dad behind them as well. Don't be like the guy in Yosemite. Meanwhile, back here's the wife trying to take care of what's going on with the children. Take initiative in spiritual health, relational health, and lastly, financial health. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says that if we don't take care, if a man doesn't take care of his own family financially, that he's worse than an unbeliever. And the reason that Paul said that was because even unbelievers took care of their families. Now, the context here is parents aging parents and aging grandparents but if it applies to that it certainly applies to our immediate immediate family our home our children and our wives that we are responsible to feel the weight of the responsibility to have enough money 
both for today and tomorrow. We feel the weight of getting the bills paid and paid on time. We feel the weight of establishing what level of Christian giving we're going to be giving this year. We feel the weight of future planning. I love how John Piper puts it in his book, uh, What's the Difference? A little booklet on man, men and women and manhood, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. womanhood. He said, even if a man is um, disabled and is unable to work, he can still feel the weight of the responsibility of having enough money in the home. Even if his wife is bringing in all or most of the funds, there's a responsibility that he feels to pray about the finances, maybe to come up with some other ideas on how they can help bring some more finances into the family fund. And I think it's a wonderful picture of the issue is not that the husband makes all the money or that he writes out all the checks or that he pays all the bills, but he feels the weight. He feels this responsibility. And so as the one responsible, he is going to be taking initiative in all the areas that he can. I remember the day I came back home after I'd given my wife the paycheck the day before. This was our first year in, in ministry. And we didn't get paid much money. I was being paid like, kind of like a pastor, a uh, 26-year-old right out of seminary who had no children and his wife's working. Only I was 37 and my wife wasn't working. We had three kids at home. And there just wasn't enough money. And I came home to find my wife in tears. I won't tell the story next service. Um, because there just wasn't enough money to go around. And so I'd always have to say, we'll do this this week and not this this week. We'll do this next week. And God convicted me that day. You need to take over. Because I would typically tell my wife, I would do the budget and I'd say, do this, do that. But she would always be stuck with the, here's the check and here's the bills. So I said, from now on, I'm going to take responsibility of this. I don't want you, because it turned out she was, every time I got a paycheck, she would be in tears and I said from now on my responsibility I finally manned up and guys there might be one of these areas that God's speaking to you this morning not speaking to the person in front of you or next to you not speaking to your wife and this is what I I promise I promise that no matter how inadequate you feel, and sometimes this is the issue, guys, they just want to go out and play because they, they see their wives as very competent, very capable, and they're fine just to let her take these responsibilities on, the, uh, on her shoulders. Men, I hope we've shown you at least a little bit in Scripture that that's wrong, that the responsibility is yours and mine. and that you and I need to step up to the plate. And if you do, even if you feel incompetent, there's grace for you. When we obey what God says to us, God provides all that we need to do all that he tells us to do. I promise you that. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's going to be smooth right out of the gate. But ultimately, God will give you all that you need. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. I think it's weakness as men. It's weakness that that God's able to channel his grace through. And so if you don't feel confident, great. That's probably a good thing. And if you do feel confident, but you were just happy to let her 
uh, take the reins because she's good at it. It's time to go to her and gently say, honey, God's convicted me that I've been shirking my responsibilities. How can I, tell me, how can I effectively take these responsibilities onto myself? And he will bless you. He will bless your wife. He will bless your children. Your wife will feel great freedom as a result. Maybe not at first because she's been accustomed to doing all this stuff so long. But great freedom. You don't have to take everything from her. What you want to take from her is the responsibility and that weight so that it's not hers. The inner tyrant that we talked about two weeks ago distorts godly shepherding. The inner schoolboy neglects godly shepherding. And probably for some of us, it's time for us to step up to the plate and count in our families. If you need some help doing that, there's a lot of godly men around this congregation that would be glad to help guide you. They don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But just to help you get on the right road. Father, I do pray for our husbands this morning. I pray for a bold willingness to take on our shoulders the responsibility perhaps that we've shirked in some ways over the years. And I pray that you would equip us as men to set the model for our children to relieve our wives of responsibilities that you haven't burdened them with, you've burdened us with. And to to be a, a shepherd that's faithful, to be a shepherd that's discerning, a, be a shepherd that's strong, to be a shepherd that's gentle and lowly. For your honor and for this Christian marriage, this Christ-centered marriage that you're calling us to portray to the watching world as a picture of the glorious love affair between Christ and his church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.